Welcome back to the Weirdest Thing Podcast. I am one of your hosts, Scotty Milder. Yep, I am one of your other hosts, Amelia Poro. And we're here to tell you some uh, weird-ass stories. I have no idea what your story is this week. You haven't told me. I know. I know. (laughs) (laughs) I like to try to go into my stories with you blind because it's never fun to tell you something that you already know. Yeah. I'll usually kind of tell you what I'm thinking of doing, but then sometimes mm-hmm. I change it. So, <laughs> uh, so this week I have a story. Uh, before I start, yeah. uh, I mean, I guess we should just dive in. But before I start, uh, do you need to close your doors and windows and lock everything? I mean, things are. <sighs> Dang it! <laughs> Let me just do the kitchen one real fast. Okay. Okay. I just went and shut myself in completely just in (laughs) case. Yeah. I mean, this isn't the spookiest story I've done, but it'll, it's, it's, it's like half spooky and half really goofy. So (laughs) I think it's rude. I think it's rude that you like, we're like, "Mm, are you all shut in? Um, Well, I've learned my lesson at this point (laughs) after all of, after all of my breaks. Um, Hold on. Before you get started, I do Mm want to talk about inventing Anna because I've been watching that. I haven't watched it yet, but I know kind of the true story. I don't know all the details. It's uh, like, I'm this, I'm just like dumbfounded. (laughs) Um, I'm a little mad at how the show is framing her. A little bit. Um, I've read a couple. To, I'll let you finish, but I've read a couple. Yeah, critiques. yeah. I'm. I'm. There's a little bit of like girl bossness about it that mm-hmm. I feel like they're trying to kind of be like, oh my god, like it's so incredible. And I'm like, it, they're like, it's so incredible that she did all this stuff. And I'm like, the thing that she did was she conned a whole bunch of people. Right. Granted, I'm on the second to last episode, so maybe there's going to be some huge revelation about something that I guess would make me feel bad about saying that, but. I don't know. She seems really odd. And like, she'll like steal all this money. She'll like con people who are her friends into doing something for her. Or she'll like take a whole bunch of money from them. And when they're like, you know, you did this and like, it fucking sucks and you've ruined my life and I need you to give me back this money. She's just like, why are you being so dramatic? Mm-hmm. Like this yeah. is, you're acting crazy. And I'm like, I <laughs> hate you. Like, yeah. not only are you a fucking awful person, you're also a, like a crazy gaslighter. Yeah. Well, and for anyone who, I mean, who's been living under a rock and doesn't know what you're talking about. Like, oh, right, right, should- right, right, right. Like, so it's a Netflix show. It's Netflix, right? It is. Uh-huh. It's um, a Shonda Rhimes show. Yeah. And it's, uh, it's basically, it's a true story of a woman. What's her real name? It was like Anna Sorokin, I think. Anna Soro- S- Sorokin. Sorokin. Like Sorokin. It's like Aaron Sorokin, um, but not Aaron. Sorokin. There's an extra O in there. Yeah. But she was walking around New York by the name Anna Delvey saying right. that she was essentially this German heiress and she was doing all this stuff and she had this plan it's also one of those things that like they go into big basically what happened is that she was parading around new york saying that she was this german heiress and then she got into this thing where she was like i'm going to create this foundation it's going to become the 
It's going to be called the Anna Delvey Foundation. Right. But the thing is, is that it had the name foundation, but it was essentially just a fucking really exclusive club. Like yeah. it was just a, it was just something that was going to be super exclusive for like the wealthy and which well, funnily enough actually ties into my story. But uh, yeah, so it um, sounds actually more legit than the Trump Foundation. Uh, I mean, there's that, but that's the thing is that you're like, it's a foundation, but it's just yeah. a, like a club. It's not real. Yeah. And uh, yeah, it's just, it's one of those things where I'm like, please do not ask me to feel bad for this potato faced white woman. Art artist. Yeah. Yeah. Who, you know, if she had been like anybody who was not a white woman, they, I mean, and I guess like a white dude, they would have hauled her off and, and thrown her in mm-hmm. jail and, you know, thrown right. away the key. Well, um, and yeah. One thing I've heard, and maybe you can uh, speak to this, one, one consistent criticism I've seen of the series is that they're kind of demonizing one of the victims. They're, they're making one of the victims look really uh, culpable, I guess. I, I mean, I'm not sure. Okay, hold on pause the work pa- like cut this out but do you know which victim you're talking about i don't remember i don't remember her name um mm-hmm. and, and yeah i don't want to spoil anything for anyone i do know that the character is based on a woman who also wrote like an article yep yeah yeah, yeah. This. okay yeah um i think it's i think it is i do think that they don't put her in the best light however i don't think there's another woman uh, who's a, one of her friends and i actually think they make her look pretty bad because you're this other person continues to stand up for anna and is like no and she's like she's our friend and mm-hmm. you know like i'm ride or die and blah 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 and i'm like i feel like that's after everything you've seen to continue to be like ride or die for this person is right. really naive at best <laughs> so i think I actually think that character comes off worse than the other one you're talking about. Okay. I think that the other one maybe comes off as a little, what's the word I'm looking like a, a little bit of like a hanger on, you know what I mean? So mm-hmm. maybe you saw someone who was like, Oh, this is like a rich, wealthy heiress. And that sounds fun. And she wants to take me to Morocco and do all that. So mm-hmm. that sounds cool. Yeah. Uh, and then, and then kind of got fucked over. Well, the, thi- yeah. the thing I read and like, this is getting into like, wild speculation um, right but i did read it on the internet so okay so it's real <laughs> so it's real it's um real. i think it was on like the daily beast or something they were basically saying netflix had tried to purchase that person's uh like tried to buy the right to that person's account okay but they sold their article like the film rights to someone else and netflix basically being pissed off was like throwing her under the bus now who knows what's true there but that but that seems to be like i've just seen it all over social media and other people being like why are they why do they have this grudge against this one victim again i, I haven't seen it so i, I yeah i think that that's an overstatement is it? of okay. how they portray this story <laughs> yeah i think that that's a, that's kind of looking for something that's like not really there um okay. i mean no one comes out looking good in this i mean just from from the trailer i've seen like it looks like they're going for kind of an across the board almost black comedy kind of vibe yeah i mean the thing is is that this chick was out of her fucking mind Mm -hmm. and she you know she had some gall she was doing things that it's like and I, i think this is the thing right is that like 
we're talking about a person who, if she was walking down the street and saw a hundred dollar bill laying on the ground, she would not only pick up the hundred dollar bill and wouldn't be like, is this someone's, Mm -hmm. she would like go into a business and be like, my wallet was stolen and this is a hundred dollar bill from it. And so like, she would, she would use Mm -hmm. that to like create a larger con. Right. She'd start like a GoFundMe based on the $100 bill. (laughs) Right. Yes. Um, She's, I mean, she's a fucking thief and it's the type of thing where I think the thing that makes me a little mad is that I think the show again, not completely finished with it, Mm -hmm. but the show up to this point is kind of taking this thing of like, I mean, she was really smart and I'm like, it's not that she was really smart. She's just more brazen. Like anybody else would see the situations that she got herself into and would have been like, I can't fucking do this because I'm hurting a lot of people and I'm like ruining lives and reputations and stuff. So I'm going to bow out. It's not that she's oh so clever and oh so smart. It's that she has no conscience. Yeah. And like no shame. <laughs> yeah. And that you she know, was willing that to That allows you things. to do a lot of things if you have no Yeah. Shame. Yeah. I mean, it takes a certain type of person to be living in someone's home and to rack up like $400,000 in credit Jesus. card charges. And then to just be like, okay, thanks, bye. Yeah. Why are you like being her so bad dramatic? accent. Yeah. <laughs> I hate her. I hate yeah. her. I've, I've, I've been wanting to watch it. I just haven't had time to sit down. I've My weird um, obsession has been Star Trek Discovery, okay. which, which is funny because I'm not really a Star Trek fan. <laughs> so uh-huh. um, I think I talked about it on the show a little bit. I, I got super into Star Trek Discovery. They just kind of restarted it. Like yeah. they had their big mid-season break and then now they're starting it up again. So mm-hmm. that's been that's been my life lately. Um, Mine has been inventing Anna. Uh, the Gilded Age. Yeah, the Gilded Age. I haven't watched that yet. Um, yeah, yeah. I, it's... I know you were getting kind of hot and bothered over one of the the actors. <laughs> I'm not going to talk about that until you watch the show. Okay. Um, but it is sending me. It's nothing like Yellow Jackets, but it is providing me with the similar brain activity in Yellow Jackets. But whereas mm-hmm. Yellow Jackets was theory, Gilded Age is history. Uh, okay. So in that way, they're different. Yeah, and that's big on re- big recommend. Not- HBO. That's on HBO Max. Yeah. 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 I need to watch those. Like I said, just been Star Trek Discovery and then People Magazine Investigates, which is just like dumb true crime shit. <laughs> you know what? The, you know what else I watched last night? Because I was like, I've watched everything and I don't, I don't, I don't have anything left to watch. I watched The Dirt. Do you remember that movie? It was a movie that came out on Netflix about Motley Crue. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. I never saw that. You told you me. Didn't. About it. You didn't. No, I forgot it. all it's about fucking that. ridiculous. It is so ridiculous and a just a good time i mean it's just again talking about like a what seems to feel like a very different time mm-hmm. uh you know i know that there is still lots of shenanigans that go on with people especially if you hit a lot of fame and money you know right. very quickly but those dudes were fucking nuts yeah i yeah. mean well just that whole insane. 80s I mean, that whole 80s glam metal era. But then Motley Crue were even, like, more debaucherous than most. I mean, just yeah. absolutely insane. Just, I Have like, you... I can't believe that they didn't die. Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, I do know that, I mean, 
they killed I mean, they, a, a lot of them, yeah, they did. And a lot of them almost died. And I think Nikki six even actually died. I mean, I think he, he did remain, technically die. <laughs> yeah. He yeah. didn't remain dead, but I'm just like, I cannot believe you guys made it out of that time period alive. Yeah. Have you heard about the um, current feud between Eddie Vedder and Motley Crue? No. Uh, <laughs> Eddie Vedder talks some shit uh, mm-hmm. in an interview, basically talking okay. about how like he used to, I think he was saying he used to like work clubs back in San Diego in like the late eighties when he was like, before he joined Pearl Jam. Cause he's okay. from San Diego. He's not from uh, Seattle. Okay. Okay. He actually moved to Seattle to join Pearl Jam, but okay, he was like working in clubs and like ven- concert venues in San Diego back at the time. And so all the LA bands would come down to San Diego to play. Mm-hmm. And he was just like, God, I hated all that shit. And he was just like fucking girls, 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 Motley Crue. I fucking hated all that. And so of course, Nick, six is not one to take that line down it's like gets on and like he's like it's a like twitter he's like it's a badge of honor because they're the most boring fucking band in the world like talking about pearl jam <laughs> and then and then eddie vetter is like doing some solo show and starts talking shit about how tommy lee used to have the rotating drum thing and it's just like, yes I just love like old rich rock stars just sniping at each other. <laughs> it's also just so funny because I mean, it's like, of course you're not going to like each other's music. Right. Like yeah, it's coming from, I mean, yeah, it's, ask, completely it's like completely different sounds and ideologies about yeah. what music should be doing. And we like, might as well have like, you know, someone who's like a polka performer, like try to talk about, I don't know, like R and B or something like they're just I, not in the same. Yeah. Universe. They're just not gonna. Yeah. And like, that's okay. Yeah. I mean, no, I mean, I, I actually, I like it. Pearl Jam and I like Motley Crue. So. Same dude. Yeah. Pearl's girl. Dr. Feelgood is a bop. Oh, it's fucking. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, drop what? drop some in right now. <laughs> <laughs> There we go. Yeah. <laughs> what was their fucking um their fucking power ballad? God, I'm forgetting the name um, of it. It's so good. Hold on, hold on. Yeah, I um I'm on my way. Yeah. Right? <laughs> yeah I'm exactly. on my way. I just remember they're like synchronized slow motion singing in the v- music video. <laughs> yeah. Tonight. Home sweet home. That's it. Yes, yeah. that's what it is. Yeah, that's, um, I'm gonna drop that in too. Fantastic. Okay. All right. Okay. Let's 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 get serious now. Let's, yeah. Let's get real serious about my very 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 serious story this week. Okay. Uh, and I'm hoping you're <laughs> picking up. So like this, uh, my whole plan was like I, I really wanted to do like a spooky story. I was thinking back. I was like, you know, I had so much fun doing like the Black Eyed Children and like um, you know things like that. So I was like, we're gonna do another like good spooky story. And I was like, you know what? You know, it's a good story, but I didn't actually know that much about the story. It was the Bell Witch of Tennessee? Yep. And what I discovered as <laughs> so I started doing the research is it's got its spooky moments, but it's also just fucking weird and goofy 
as shit. That's, <laughs> so, I will say, I will I, 100% say that that is one of my favorite things about doing this podcast is <laughs> it'll be like, oh yeah, I'm going to go, I'm going to fucking go talk about this thing. The um, anniversary of the death of, oh, what is his name? Is it Keith Herring, the artist? Oh yeah. Do the just passed. I think it was February 16th. And that day there was all of this cool stuff about like his, uh, you know, it was like, this is his last painting and it was an unfinished painting. And like, Mm -hmm. it was meant to do that that. to show like the thing, you know, like how, how the AIDS epidemic was like really affecting the world and blah, blah, blah. And I was like, you know what, I'm going to, I'm going to, I think that might be my story for this week. And I went to look into it and it was like, it was one of his last paintings. Mm -hmm. And I was like, well, I can either do (laughs) herring, which is cool, but isn't something that I'm like, you know, it's, it's hard to do a subject for this show if you're not like really invested in the end of the story. So first there's that. And I was like, I'm not super interested in just doing like a book report on him. Right. Um, And then I was like, well, maybe I could tie it to like, you know, the AIDS epidemic. And I was like, that's really fucking I'm not doing it. It's big. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Well, this one, I I stuck with it. But as I was reading it, because I knew like the broad strokes of like, there was this family in Tennessee that was haunted by something that Mm might have been a witch or might have been a demon or something. Mm. And then as I got into the details, I was like, spoiler alert, believability scale. I'm going to put this one real fucking low. Okay. Um, (laughs) Just just, let's put that right up front. Because I started getting into it. We'll we'll talk about it. I was just like, what? What the fuck is this? So anyway, with that set up, let's talk about the bell witch of Tennessee. <laughs> okay. See, when you first said this to me, I always get this and I actually don't know. I think I know nothing about this story, but I get this confused with Bella and the witch elm. Oh yeah. Yeah. Totally, that right. story. And yeah. then the other weird story, right? Isn't there some other weird story about a woman who is found and like, they think she may have been a spy. Yeah. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah. I yeah, always get all, I always get these three mixed Right. Up. Well, and then the bell witch, like it started entering pop culture again sort of 20 some years ago with the Blair Witch uh, because like they're not the same fucking story at all the Blair Witch Project has nothing to do with the Bell Witch but I think because they sound similar kind of like Cleveland Indians and Cleveland Guardians people were just like let's make Bell Witch movies but like none of them actually are like the story so anyway uh my sources for this are of course wikipedia a book by a guy named alan brown called haunted tennessee ghosts and strange phenomena of the volunteer state and then Mm. uh an article from tennessean.com from october of last year the author is katie nixon it's bell witch lore spins dark tale but could science explain it all okay so uh john bell senior was born in 1750 in Edgecombe County in what was then the British American province of North Carolina. Uh, This is pre-Revolutionary War. He was, uh, as a young kid, I didn't, I wasn't able to find a whole lot about his youth, but I think he was fair. He was born fairly poor. When he was a kid, he worked as an apprentice barrel maker, um, which I guess back then that's a thing you could do. I, I was surprised that like, you had to apprentice to make barrels, but I mean, I mean, I don't know how to make a barrel. So I, I same, I <laughs> yeah. don't either. Uh, and I feel like, I feel like any trade had like you, you know, you could apprentice in it. Right. And my story as well has some things that I'm like, that's not a real fucking job. Yeah. <laughs> that's a fake job. Yeah. It sounded like a fake job to me, but yeah. then he did go on to become a farmer. 
Um, okay. okay, this is gross. Great. Uh, in 1782, when John was 32 years old, he married uh, his wife, Lucy Williams. You want to take a guess how old she was? God. Yeah. Okay, wait, how old was he? 32. I'm going to overshoot it a little bit to help out with the story. I'm going to say 16. Yeah, you're um, you're too old. That's she what was, I figured. Yeah, she was 12. Ew. Yeah, I read that and was just like, I mean, ugh. okay. What year was this? This was 1782. So. Okay. Let me also state here that I'm not like, well, it was a different time then. But yeah. <laughs> but I feel like 1782, they really did not give a fuck. Yeah, they were yeah, just exactly. like, "What are you six? That works." Yes. Yeah. Well, and this is back when, like, there was really no concept of like teenagers or adolescents. Right. It was like you're a child, and then now you're and now a you're an adult. And you get age. pregnant. Cool. Yeah. Exactly. Rock and roll. Yeah. So, thirty-two-year-old man marries twelve-year-old Lucy Williams. Um, he'd already bought a farm in this province in North Carolina. They settled on it, and then over the next eight years, he became one of the most prosperous farmers in the area. Don't know what the fuck he farmed, but whatever he, he did well at it. Okay. Um, <laughs> in 1804, the two of them left them and their family. At this point, I think they had already had all of their children. At this point, they had Jesse, Betsy, Richard, John Jr., Drury, okay. and Benjamin. I, I'm pretty okay. sure at this point, I'm never going to have children. But if I do ever have a son, I kind of want to name him Drury. D-R-U-R-Y? No, D-R-E-W-R-Y. So I'm it's like sorry. Drew, but then R-Y. But Drury. Drury, yeah. Like jewelry, um, but Drury. Drury, exactly. Okay, well, good luck. Yeah, <laughs> good luck, <laughs> good kid. Luck, good luck to anyone <laughs> who isn't, I don't know, a fucking like native English speaker. I'm just trying to think of my my poor parents. Trying, trying to say, to that, say that, yeah. Apparently, um, he went by Drew. So, you know. Of course, thank God. Sort of like Anne Rice being named Howard and being like, fuck that, I'm in. Like, so. So they had these kids and then uh, they were very prosperous farming family. And then they decided to leave North Carolina in 1804 and move West into what was still the mostly, I mean, it was starting to be colonized, but like much more sparsely populated, or I should say sparsely populated by white folks, uh, Tennessee area. They settled in an area called Red River near what is now Adams, Tennessee. I looked it up. It's kind of like right at the tippy top of Tennessee, kind of in the middle. You know how Tennessee's big, long, flat? Yep. It's like right in the middle of the top. Yep. Um, so that borders what? Kentucky or something? I think so. Who knows? Who cares? It's, it's all Kentucky. the same to me. <laughs> Fuck you, Kentucky. Um, so they settled in this area. They purchased 320 acres, uh, built a large cabin, and then were like quickly embraced by the community. They became active members of the Red River Baptist Church. And then they continued their financial success. Good for Um, them. And they became one of the bigger, like big, prosperous farming families of this region. And then in 1817, Mm -hmm. uh, John Sr., he was out walking along the road near his farm and he saw something out sitting like in the corn that looked like, at first he thought it was a dog. And then he looked closer and what he saw was a creature that had the body of a dog, but the head of a rabbit. So he was like, <laughs> typical American was like, oh, that's weird. I'm going to kill it. Okay. Um, so, so he shoots at it a bunch of times and it just looks at him and then vanishes before his very eyes. And then he went home and they moved away 
and end the story in the story okay moving on to yours <laughs> no uh that's not that's super not what happened um later uh young drury otherwise known as drew uh-huh. uh was out walking around the farm and he saw an unknown bird of quote extraordinary size perched on a fence okay when he tried to approach it it flew away daughter betsy saw a little girl in a green dress swinging from the limb of an oak tree also on the farm and then dean who was an enslaved person who was owned by the bells mm-hmm. uh he was why i apparently it was hard to understand i think he lived in the house with the bells and his wife did not and so he would like walk between the house and okay. wherever his wife was okay. and one of the times he was going out to see his wife he was followed by an enormous black dog um okay <laughs> sorry so, yeah <laughs> quick recap we yeah. have something that has the body of a dog and the head of a rabbit okay uh-huh. creepy that's sure. weird a big bird a big bird that could be anything a girl in a dress yep and a black dog and a dog <laughs> yeah okay. so at this point just, I'm, i just want to make sure that i'm yeah following you're, along. you're, you're not missing anything <laughs> um <laughs> As I said, low on the believability scale. Um, but <laughs> so they imagining start... <laughs> them talking about that. I saw this fucking thing in the cornfield that looked like a dog with a rabbit head. And then the daughter's like, no fucking way. I saw a chick with a green dress. And yeah, like, what? <laughs> <laughs> Witchcraft. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, things do, to, to be fair to the bells. Things did start getting a whole lot weirder. Okay. Okay. I'm sorry. I'm not trying. (laughs) No. As I said, this is the type of thing as I'm reading this story, I'm reading it being like, what the fuck? Girl in a green dress? What's that? Like, no fucking way. I saw a big black dog. (laughs) I saw a girl in a green dress like at Walmart the other day. I don't think Walmart was haunted. But anyway. Okay. Okay. <laughs> I'm ready. I'm ready. But then after the big black dog, strange things started to happen around the house. Okay. All right. Now I'm ready. So here we go. This is this is why I needed to have you lock your doors and windows because this is the only part of the story that's like borderline scary. Okay. So they started hearing knocking along the floors, doors, no. and walls. No. no, no, no. Um, and at first they were like, could be, is there an animal like caught somewhere? But it was like mm-hmm. all over the house. And whenever they would look, they wouldn't see anything. They started Mm-mm. hearing like footsteps and mm. kicking sounds on no. the roof. No, absolutely not. Then they started hearing what sounded like rats gnawing on the bedposts. Okay. That's, now this is like 1700s or 1817 uh, Tennessee. So I'm thinking it could have actually been rats lying on the on the It could have been a raccoon crawling yeah. around. Who knows? All of these, yes. so far, everything sort of sounds like you can explain it away. Uh, but then they started hearing invisible dogs fighting. Okay. They started hearing the sound of chains dragging across the floor. Nope. And choking and gulping sounds. Ew. Yeah. That's awful. Yeah, that that I don't like that part. I don't um, like that either. Then John Bell Sr., the father, he started experiencing po- sleep paralysis. Now, I saw on Wikipedia it said he was experiencing sleep paralysis of the mouth. I have no fucking idea what that means. I tried to find I tried to follow that up and 
I feel like that was just some weirdo, like Wikipedia editor, just fucking with me. <laughs> Sorry, he just think he's like. Ah, ah. Yeah. I mean, maybe that's what it was. He couldn't like his vocal. Cords maybe he frozen. couldn't. Yeah, who knows? But, but what a weird way to put that. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So sleep paralysis of the mouth. <laughs> sleep paralysis of the butthole. Um. <laughs> Okay, I'm sorry. Uh, I love doing the show when it's like at night and I'm sleep deprived. (laughs) I know, same. (laughs) Um, Okay, so after the sleep paralysis, then the children they'd be sleeping in bed, and the sheets would suddenly be pulled off of them. Mm -hmm. So we're getting into like some standard poltergeist stuff. Yep. type of stuff this entity which at this point is still like they don't know what it is seemed to then focus its attention primarily on the children specifically mm. daughter betsy who seemed to really have it in for betsy mm. it would pull on the children's hair it would scratch at them betsy would be slapped and pinched and she would feel like her body was being stuck with pins what the fuck um the stress of these attacks was so great that she actually started having like convulsions oh shit. and would pass out for no apparent reason uh. so things are so like we're going from you know a weird dog to like things are getting Right. Things are kind of getting real here. Yeah, absolutely. And then whatever this entity was, it started trying to communicate. Mm. Specifically, started trying to communicate with John. It started by whistling at him. But then after that, he began to hear like distant, far off whispers. And at first he couldn't understand what this voice was saying. But eventually he was able to discern it. And it turned out that the voice was saying that it was the spirit of a woman named Kate Bats. Okay. So it's real unclear who Kate Batts is. So I'm going to go through a few of the theories. And these are all, nothing has ever been confirmed. So the first story, this is sort of like the urban legend, like folklore version of this, is that Kate was actually someone who John had known back in North Carolina. And in fact, they were engaged to be married. This is before he married little 12-year-old Lucy. Um, But then before the wedding, her lifeless body was found next to a well. This was in 1770. Kate was known to be a quote ill-tempered woman. <laughs> so, I mean, history is so unkind. To uh, women. Yeah, I mean, and I and again, I could not find anything like to elaborate on right. why. She, no, I talked to her once. She was in a bad mood, so she was found dead by a well. That makes sense. Yeah, witchcraft. Yeah, witchcraft. exactly. So the neighbors believed that John had murdered her because they thought, well, he'd just be better off murdering her than like committing to like marry her and live with her for the rest of his life. I'm thinking, or break off your fucking engagement, dude. If you're not into her, you're not into her. You don't have to fucking murder her. But anyway, we don't know. It's allegedly, allegedly. We don't right, know right, right. Another version of the story is that it's very similar, but that she didn't die in 1770 and that John actually maintained a relationship with her after he married Lucy. And then when the family moved to Tennessee, he brought Kate with him Uh, uh and then locked her up in the farm's smokehouse where she starved to death. Why would you bring a bitch along just to lock um, her up in the smokehouse and let her starve to death? That that story makes no sense. Okay, whatsoever. it doesn't make any sense. Okay. <laughs> like, I'll just set okay. that one aside. Now, okay. there is a court records from 1817 that's showing that John got sued by a guy named Benjamin Batts in Tennessee. It was over a slave deal, hmm. and he was, and John was charged with usury, which apparently means like an exploitation type loan with like super high interest, like illegally high interest. 
Okay. Um, so people are like making the connection, Kate Batts, Benjamin Batts. Maybe there's a connection with the names there, but okay. who knows? In any case, it appeared that Kate Batts really had a bone to pick with John. Okay. Um, she called John old Jack. And in her whisperings to him, she said that she would eventually kill him and curse the family. And that she decided to focus most of her anger on poor little Betsy. When asked why she was there, she responded, I am a spirit. I was once very happy, but have been disturbed. She's also said to have claimed that her presence was somehow tied to a nearby Native American burial mound that was located on the property. I mean, you're probably picking up a theme of like none of this shit adds up to anything. Yeah, yeah. Again. <laughs> like it, it seems to it really a lot of this depends on it seems to depend on who's telling the story. Okay, okay. So <laughs> even though Kate wanted John to fuck the fuck off, she seemed to like Lucy well enough and would actually show Lucy kindness. She and Lucy being the wife. Mm-hmm. Uh, so she called, she apparently told, I think told Lucy in her disembodied witch voice that she was the most perfect woman to walk the face of the earth. And then she would like give Lucy fresh fruit and sing her hymns. Um, Lesbian love story. Mm-hmm. Well, that's, I was reading this. I was like, I just think Kate Batts was into Lucy and was trying to get rid of John. Yeah. Yeah. This sounds like, uh, I don't know why she was taking out on, out on Betsy. That sucks. Yeah. That seems uh, But this sounds, yeah, this sounds like a queer ghost love story mm-hmm. so far. Yeah. Yeah, I had the same thought. Unfortunately, I didn't see any more like God damn it. Okay. heading down that path. Okay. But weirdly, even though she Kate seemed to really not like Betsy and would like target her, she did like John Bell Jr. And uh, I'll get to their weird relationship here in a little bit. Okay. So all this weird stuff's going on. John is having an invisible witch talk to him and tell him she's going to kill him. Okay. And he's like, maybe we don't want to spread this around that this is going on. Yeah. So they're trying to keep this like family secret, but they did turn to a family friend who was a local minister, a guy named James Johnston. He came to stay with them and just to kind of see like what was going on. When he went to bed, he was awakened by all the strange noises and whispering and stuff. So he experienced it too. Okay. When he and John spoke in the morning, James told them that it was quote, a spirit, just like in the Bible. And then he tried to exercise the house and didn't work. Hmm. <laughs> Imagine that. Uh, and then my guess is like, you know, the the bells are like, we need to keep the secret. We're going to tell our one trusted friend, the local minister, because we know we can trust him. And then I think this minister went and just blabbed to everybody <laughs> because word got around. <laughs> Thanks, bro. Thanks, bro. With your shitty, unsuccessful exorcism and your big right. fucking mouth. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Um, so people started hearing all about this word spread all through the region. And then people start showing up because people want to like see the witch or hear the okay. witch or, okay. you know, and it's, you know, they call it the bell witch, but it's real unclear. Was it a ghost? Was it a witch? Was it, you know, again, it kind of seems like it depends on who's telling right. the story. Right. So they would come to the farm and then they would go away and tell their own stories about what happened on the farm. And so the story starts just getting more and more fantastical. Okay. So people would say that they would come to the farm and Kate, again, invisible, just a disembodied voice, would talk to them. She would quote scripture. She would sing hymns and or dirty drinking songs. (laughs) (laughs) Would like have like full on conversations with these visitors. She Mm -hmm. repeated word for word a recent sermon from a local Baptist minister. And then apparently repeated word for word another sermon given on the same day that 13 miles away. Okay. Um, People from... 
the Bell's church in particular would come to the farm because they start hearing this story. And I think they were like concerned for their fellow parishioners. They would come to the farm. Right. And then after like one or two visits, they'd be like, fuck this. And like would never go back. So okay. who knows what was happening? The most famous visitor to the Bell farm at this time was uh, General Andrew Jackson. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> 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 the look on your face said it all. Uh, <laughs> so Andrew Jackson, he had John Bell and then his son, John Jr. had both fought under Andrew Jackson during the War of 1812. And they fought at the Battle of New Orleans, which was one of the final battles of that war. And I guess they like became friendly or, you know, they had a continuing relationship with him. So this is like 18, probably 18, 18, 19, something like that. Andrew Jackson was traveling from Nashville with a group of men to the bell farm they were going to visit the bells they were pulling a wagon they were riding in a wagon that was being pulled by four large draft horses okay as they're approaching the farm one of the men in the party made a joke about you know ooh, did you hear that you know their house is haunted by some witch or something and as soon as he said it the horses stopped like they just suddenly came to a stop the guys jumped out of the wagon and tried to get the horses to move they're whipping the horses the horses wouldn't move then jackson himself made another quip about the witch where he said something like, well, this must be the witch. And then a disembodied female voice came out of the tree saying, they can go now, general. I'll see you all later tonight. And at that point, the horses started moving again. Uh, okay. <laughs> uh, yeah. <laughs> but you know, these are like hardened military men. So instead of screaming and running, uh, they're like, okay, cool. And they keep on their way to the farm. When they arrive at the farm, they set up camp in front of the cabin. And then one of the men who sounds like had a real tiny dick started bragging about how he was a quote, witch tamer. And he started brandishing his pistol and saying that if the witch showed up, he's going to shoot it because you know, America shoot at the fucking ghost with yeah. nobody. I'm going to yeah. shoot that witch in her <laughs> fucking face. Yeah. I, I, that was, I mean, that was basically the plan. Yes. Um, later that evening, they're all sitting around inside the cabin with bell and this quote witch tamer he gets all riled up again and he like orders the witch to appear as soon as he does that he starts convulsing and then screaming that something is beating him and sticking him with pins well, he started he to show up i mean you know you got what you asked for dude yeah. uh he started flailing wildly and then was apparently thrown by some unseen force out of the door <laughs> and then the disembodied voice came again saying she would expose quote the other fraud in jackson's party the next day and jackson was like yeah i want to know who this other fraud is but mm -hmm. his men were fucking freaked out. They're like, no, we, we just need to leave. And they managed to talk him into leaving with them before they mm. ever found out who the other, quote, fraud was. Okay. Um, and none of these men ever returned to the bell farm. So Fair. I mean, you know, fucking invisible ghost throws a guy out of a door. Like, I probably yeah. wouldn't. I wouldn't want to go back. Yeah. Yeah. Makes sense. Um, so the haunting continues. And as it's going, John Bell's health starts taking a turn for the worse. And he would have these like periods where he was like bedridden, but then he would seem to recover. But then he would be like bedridden again. Mm. He was taking medicine for it, but nothing seemed to be making him better. And then one day, uh, one of the family members, I, I, not, I don't remember who, looked at the medicine bottle and discovered that it had been replaced by, quote, a deadly poison. Now, I don't know what the poison was, mm -hmm. but it was a, quote, deadly poison. It was a, but it was a, 
that we know it was a deadly one. Yeah. Okay. And then on December 19th, 1820, John Bell Sr. went into a coma. His sons ran to get his medicine because they they were like, fuck this deadly poison. Let's get the real stuff again. Right. And then they went to get it and realized that it had been replaced again, this time with a, quote, strange, darkish liquid that was like only half full. Okay. Okay. This is this is all weird. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this um, is weird. As they're looking at the darkish liquid, the witch, Kate Batts, speaks up. Mm-hmm. And she says, here's the deal, guys. I gave John, I gave your dad the potion while he slept. And he's never going to wake up again. So, you know, just make your peace with that. And he died the next day. As a test, the sons were like, what is this liquid? So they, so this asshole gives the liquid to the family cat. Of course. And the cat, of course, dies like immediately. Right. They're like, okay, this is bad news. So they throw the poison into the fire and it explodes into like a bright blue flame. Yeah. (laughs) Um, But you would think after John died, this would be the end of the haunting, right? Mm -hmm. You would be wrong. There we go. Yeah. Uh, so a few years later, or maybe like a year later, Betsy falls in love. Like this is the younger daughter who was the one who was like the main right. focus. Right. She fell in love with a local boy named Joshua Gardner. And this okay. is the story I think that she told. And I'll get okay. to a different version of the story okay. <laughs> that I think contradicts it. Um, but she says she fell in love with this local boy, a guy named Joshua Gardner, and that they planned to marry. But before they could marry, she heard the voice of the witch basically telling her not to marry Joshua. Okay. But she was like, no, I'm in love with him. We're going to get married. But the witch kept taunting her for like months and and then started taunting Joshua. And so finally they were like, okay, we can't do this. And they broke off the engagement. Okay. In 1821, the witch spoke up to John's widow, Lucy, and told her that she would return to the farm in seven years. Seven years go by, nothing happens. But then in 1828, seven years later, they start hearing the scratching and gnawing sounds again. Uh, They also start having the poltergeist activity, the sheets being yanked from the bed, objects being moved on their own. They tried to ignore. Like, I wonder what she was like. I'll be back. Yeah. Yeah. She go haunt somebody else. She's like, I'll be back soon. Yeah. She's hold tight, guys. um. (laughs) Let's press pause. (laughs) Let's press pause on this haunting. (laughs) (laughs) Run back, do another haunting. I mean, like seven years or so. I'll be yeah. back. And that's basically what happened. But this time they were like, ah, fucking Kate. And they just tried to ignore her. Okay. And so after about three weeks of this, she left again. But she didn't leave completely. She left the farm. But then she started haunting John Jr., the son who she seemed to like. Okay. So she shows up and starts talking to John Jr. at his, like, wherever he's living, not on the farm. And apparently they would have long, in-depth conversations about religion, Christianity, spiritualism, the need for there to be a new spiritual awakening in the country. Like, you know, she's a very, like, talkative ghost. Yeah. Apparently she would also like to gossip with the family members and be like, fucking you know, right. fucking, yeah. <laughs> yeah, we get a, I think we would have gotten along with her. And then supposedly Kate also predicted the Civil War, World War One, the Great Depression, and World War Two. Oh, okay. Um, but a few weeks after she arrived, she was like, okay, John, I- I'm done. Uh, I'm going to take off, but I'm, co- I'm coming back in 107 years. And then. Okay. Cool. I don't fucking care. I won't be here. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like, it's fucking Bye, you do bitch. you, man. Like, yeah, okay. <laughs> so many years later, John's son, Richard Bell Williams, supposedly wrote in a manuscript, which I'll talk a little bit about in a second. He supposedly wrote about the haunting saying, quote, whether it was witchery, 
such as afflicted people in past centuries and the darker ages, whether some gifted fiend of hellish nature practicing sorcery for selfish enjoyment, or some more modern science akin to that of mesmerism, or some hobgoblin native to the wilds of the country, or a disembodied soul shut out from heaven, or an evil spirit like those Paul drove out of the band into the swine, <laughs> setting them mad, or a demon let loose from hell, I am unable to decide. <laughs> Or, nor has anyone yet, <laughs> or nor has yet anyone yet divined its nature or cause for appearing. And I trust this description of the monster in all forms and shapes and of many tongues will lead experts who may come up with a wiser generation to a correct conclusion and satisfactory explanation. Okay. Over the years, the story kind of like stayed pretty local to this region of Tennessee, but then it started to spread. In 1856, some uh, magazines and newspapers up around New England started publishing accounts of it. So like the Saturday Evening Post published a story, a recounting of it. Okay. Um, it was also in the New England Farmer, which was a Boston newspaper, and the Green Mountie Freeman, which was from Vermont. And interestingly, the Green Mountie, the Green Mountain Freeman, uh, it was a Vermont periodical that was tied to like the abolitionist movement. And so when it talked about this, it talked about the quote Tennessee ghosts, and it focused on John Bell, Betsy Bell, and Joshua Gardner. And the author of this Green uh, Mountain Freeman story claimed to have actually spoken to Joshua Gardner. Okay. Still alive. Now, if you remember, Joshua Gardner was the, the young man who was supposedly going to marry Betsy. Right. You know, and her story was, we were in love, we were going to get married, but the witch would like not leave us alone. So we right. broke up. His story was like, Betsy was real into me and she learned ventriloquism and then tried to use her ventriloquism skills to convince me that the spirit of the witch was trying to tell me I should marry her. And I was like, nah, no thanks. And so when he basically turned her down, the apparition disappeared. So hmm. 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 other over the years, other stories and books would appear about the story. They would all like further embellish the legend. In 1891, John Bell's grandson, a guy named J.A. Bell, he was Richard's son and John Sr.'s grandson. So Richard is the guy who had that crazy quote I just read about the demons right. and the... Um, <laughs> Well, uh, his son, J.A., tried to take back the narrative for the family. And he okay. said, now nearly 75 years have having elapsed, the old members of the family who suffered the torments having all passed away, and the witch story still continues to be discussed as widely as the family name is known. Under misconception of the facts, I have concluded the injustice to the memory of an honored ancestry and to the public also whose minds have been abused in regard to that matter, it would be well to give the whole story to the world. These motherfuckers have never met a comma that they didn't like. Yeah. Like seriously, <laughs> fucking periods, man. Like <laughs> please use some punctuation. Yeah. <laughs> please. So his basically what he's saying is like everyone's been making up stories, and he's like, I'm gonna tell the real story because I have this manuscript that my father wrote in 1846 telling the real story. Okay. And so he published his father's manuscript. A lot of people think this is bullshit. A lot of people think it was basically a hoax by J.A. Bell claiming that it was his father's manuscript because he was basically just trying to capitalize on this family notoriety. Um, <sighs> who knows? No one knows. It's still a very popular legend and tourist attraction throughout Tennessee. 
People are still claiming weird sightings to this day. There's the Bell Witch Cave in that area. It's a 490 foot long cave on what used to be their property. (laughs) Absolutely not. A lot of legends say that uh, the witch, Kate, once she decided to like fuck off and leave the family alone, she actually went and hid in the cave. It's real unclear, again, from the stories like, was she dead? Was she not dead? But supposedly she went and hid in this cave. And then young Betsy and her friends were out exploring the cave. And one of the boys that she was with got stuck. And as he's like stuck in the cave, he's, I think he was like in a little like passageway he wriggled into and then got stuck and he couldn't get out. An invisible voice behind him said, I'll get him out. And then he felt invisible hands grabbing his ankles and pulling him free. Okay. Um, How could he fucking tell that they were invisible hands? Well, because when he got out, there was nobody there. And then he stood around with his friends while the invisible voice lectured them about being careful in caves. <laughs> So, you know, there's that. In 1987, <laughs> uh, a gas station owner in the area claimed that he actually ran out of gas right near what used to be this farm. Okay. So he began walking toward town when a rabbit came bounding out of the woods and started following him. Uh, spooked, he tried to walk faster, but the rabbit like started hopping along after him. He started running. The rabbit started running after him. Finally, the guy was out of breath. and He was like, fuck. And he like sat down on the log and the rabbit jumped up on the log, looked at him and said, Hell of a race we had there, wasn't it? It's such bullshit. <laughs> right? That's, yeah. Oh, my God. This is why I was like, I was really hoping to be able to, like, spook you again tonight. But no, <laughs> that's such so luck. <laughs> uh, now, there are people have talked about what are the possible explanations for what happened? Sure. I mean, one explanation is that it was a bunch of bullshit people making mm-hmm. up a bunch of stuff maybe some weird things started happening but then it was like game of telephone and right but one thing like just cultural context to keep in mind was that this was all happening around the time of the second great awakening um so this was like a big explosion of like religious and spiritual mm-hmm. practice particularly throughout like rural mm-hmm. America. Mm-hmm. This was a time where like the authority of the existing churches started coming under question. And you had all these like little small town prophets popping up and people saying they could talk to God and having communions with God. And, you know, all these like new denominations, weird cults, you know, yeah. uh, new religious movements started popping up. And this was like when Mormonism started, you know? Mm-hmm. So in that context, I feel like, you know, here's this family talking to, a weird spirit that wants to talk to them about religion a lot. Mm-hmm. Like it just seems like it's like part of the whole milieu of this second great awakening. Right. Now, as far as the poisoning goes. Right. There was that. Um, yeah. So there's a there's a chemistry professor at Austin Pay State University, which I believe is in Tennessee. Okay. Uh, her name is Dr. Megan Mann, and she's offers her possible explanation for what happened. She she kind of like got real once she moved to Tennessee, she got real fascinated by the legend. So this is what she says. She says it has some level of truth behind it, which is unusual. For ghost story. We know that John Bell and his family were real people. There are records that these people lived here in this area. And so that kind of sets it apart from a lot of other legends in a way that's kind of fun, I think. But then she gets into the poisoning and she says, Mm -hmm. at the bottom of that story is really a poisoning. John Bell was supposedly poisoned to death. His son talked about all these strange medical symptoms he was having, and a lot of them sounded very neurological to me. As someone who knows a bit about things like biochemistry and toxicology, Mm -hmm. he would have trouble swallowing and his tongue felt weird. He would start getting this weird twitching sensation in his face. And eventually it grew to the point where it was kind of impacting him in other parts of his body. And if that happened to someone now and he went to the doctor, they would send you to a neurologist. 
Hmm. Um, about the poison itself. She thinks that his specific symptoms, along with the quote, blue flame when it was thrown into the fire, yeah, indicates that he was a victim of heavy metal poisoning. Yeah. And her first thought was that it could be lead, but then she realized that wouldn't make sense because he would have these periods of recovery. Mm-hmm. And if you're being poisoned by lead, lead stays in your system so long. I mean, you talked yes. about this. Yep. That like you you really he wouldn't have recovered. So she thinks, Dr. Mann thinks that it was probably arsenic. Because smaller doses of arsenic, it'll make you sick, but your body can metabolize it. Mm-hmm. It's only when you like have it sustained or larger doses mm-hmm. that you're going to die. Arsenic was widely available at the time. Mm-hmm. It was a very common rat poison. Now, this is all entirely speculative. Right. Um, these are, you know, man kind of sitting there, you know, Dr. Man kind of sitting there being like, maybe, maybe, you know. Right. But she was pointing out that the Bells were well-to-do farmers in Tennessee. They had a lot of, or a number of enslaved people. Mm. And there are other documented stories of enslaved people poisoning their enslavers. Okay. And I'm like, fucking right, they did. Yeah. Um, also, many, many, many stories about abused wives having poisoned their husbands. Now, I didn't read anything specifically saying that he was abusive to Lucy. Uh, he but, married I mean, her 32, when she was 12 years old. Yeah, right. He married her so, when she was 12. You know, that, yeah. uh, that kind of tells me everything I need to know about him. Yeah. Um, it also could have been someone else in the family who wanted to get their hands on his fortune. Uh, right. Dr. Mann says, quote, I mean, it could have been someone that didn't like them from the church. Like any folklore and legend, every time it gets retold, it gets changed to be more crazy and more fantastical. And that is the story of the Bell Witch of Tennessee. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, that was. Yeah, that's, that's goofy as shit, right? It's real goofy. <laughs> it was super goofy. <laughs> Between the animals and the lectures and the rabbit race. And yeah. <laughs> I just, just, yeah, there's a lot. There's a lot to unpack there. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I think like, was there maybe something weird? Sure. But like all the things that other than the weird dog with the fucking rabbit head, which could have mm-hmm. just been a weird looking dog with big floppy ears. Yeah. Know? Or like some of the noises they were hearing. Yeah. Most of it sounds pretty explainable. I mean, Betsy having the convulsions and the and the feelings of the pain of pins in her arms and stuff could have been that, but that also could have been brought on by stress. There is like documented stories of people sort of manifesting these things themselves. right if right. they believed it you can kind of make it true you, know, yeah. you got the story of the fucking andrew jackson people being thrown through the i mean whatever that's like a story like you know who who were these fucking guys telling this story like do i believe it yeah. like so the, to me there are other ghost stories that i'll get to on this podcast <laughs> that i think are way more plausible this is not one of them <laughs> sorry people in tennessee are, At least like, it's entertaining, though. I guess yeah. that's that's the well, thing that's to what, say for it. Not I decided spooky. to stick with it because yeah. it was I I was amused by everything the whole way. Through. Yeah, yeah, not not really spooky in the least, but highly amusing. Yeah, fantastic. Well done. Good job with that ghost story. <laughs> that stupid, stupid ghost story. <laughs> I know there's like so many people who love the Bell Witch, and they're going to be real mad at me about this. But I'm sorry, that story's real dumb. I mean, the thing is, is that even if even if you took out all the dumb parts, it's still dumb. It's not really yeah. a great ghost story. I know. It's all good. It's all good. It's, it's the okay. dumb the dumb parts are why it's fun. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, okay, cool. So no cold open for me today. I am just okay. going to talk to you about old money, new money, and the founding of the Metropolitan Opera. Ooh. 
Nice. Yep. Sources for this are Daytonian in Manhattan, the Lost Academy of Music, the New York Times, two articles, the New Opera House, which came out on June 9th, 1852. And okay, I'm so sorry that I'm about to do this to you, <laughs> but this is another article. And this is, in fact, the full title. The only 400, Ward McAllister gives out the official list. Here are the names, don't you know, on the authority of their great leader, you understand, and therefore genuine, you see. <laughs> that is the entire title of wow. the article. Okay. okay. Uh, Wikipedia, Smithsonian Magazine, true story behind HBO's The Gilded Age, mm-hmm. History.com, Women and the American Story, and the uh, Metropolitan Opera website. Nice. Okay, so let's yeah, get cracking. I- okay, so up to the Civil War, life in America had remained pretty much the way that it had been for mm-hmm. quite a bit. Nobody had electricity or running water. People right. cooked by fire. They read by candlelight. They traveled by horse and buggy, unless you were going long distances. And then maybe you might travel on one of the railroads that was popping mm-hmm. up all over the country. Right. Um, not a lot of people went to college or mm-hmm. even traveled more than a few miles from where they were born. Right. Um, it was a quaint time when slavery was still legal and women weren't people. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yes. <laughs> there's yeah. there's a, whole... a quaint time that some people would like to go back to. Really would love to go back to. Yeah. Just a quick little side note about the women weren't people thing. This is in fact true because of coverture. Coverture says that women did not legally exist. Mm-hmm. A woman yeah. was one legal entity with her husband covered by marriage and by her father before that. Mm-hmm. Also in the time period that I'm going to be talking about, and I didn't know this, married women could not legally work. Hmm. I, mm-hmm. I mean, I guess I'm not, I didn't know that either. I guess I'm not surprised. But. Here's the thing is that it wasn't that women couldn't work. It's that married women couldn't right. work because it was basically seen as like, you're taking a job from a woman who needs it. You have a husband mm-hmm. who will take care of you. Obviously right. that's what husbands do. Um, right. And so for you to work is just really, it was seen as very selfish. Well, and also, yeah, it's like, but your children need you. Your husband needs you. Right, but, right, right, yeah. right, right. And you know, married women working is still seen as selfish. So great progress. Yeah. Okay. So that's, what's going on in the U S around then, but between the end of the civil war and the end of the 19th century, the U S saw this like crazy growth spurt Mm -hmm. that resulted in a lot of changes, positive and negative. And it sort of mush, it sort of mush, it mushered in mush. It ushered in (laughs) this this modern American way of life. Right. This period is generally considered the Gilded Age. Mm-hmm. Okay, so this is a term that is coined by Mark Twain in his novel of the same name. The term Gilded Age sounds really nice, but gilded is not gold. Uh, yeah. The term was meant to describe the era's patina of splendor and the shaky foundation that mm-hmm. held up the vast wealth of industrialists. Okay, so if anybody needs a definition of industrialist, like there are a lot of things in the story that I was like, context clues, I get what they are, but if somebody was like, yeah. can you can you define an industrialist? I would have been like, <laughs> no. Yeah, it's one of those, like, I know it when I see it. Yeah. Yeah. So to clear that up, an industrialist is someone who has achieved great success and enormous wealth through enterprise. Yeah. 
Okay. That's it. And we'll come back to this in a little bit. Right. Okay. So let's talk about old money and America's ruling class. Okay. The definition, (laughs) Webster's Dictionary, dictionary Uh, Mm dictionary.com. The definition of old money is, quote, the inherited wealth of established upper class families or a person, family, or lineage possessing inherited wealth. Right. That's it. That's the only qualifiers for old money. Um, It's usually used to describe a social class of rich ass folks who were able to maintain their wealth over several generations. Old money was the de facto aristocracy in the U.S. since we didn't have people with hereditary ranks or titles. Right. Like no nobility. No nobility. Yeah. Yeah. So I also just think it's interesting that, you know, even when you come to a place where it's like, well, rank and nobility isn't really a thing here. And we're doing this democracy thing that people will still be like, okay, but how can I be better? Yeah. Than no, we'll, we'll, else? we'll find a way to create the class system. 100%, no matter what. <laughs> 100%. And like one of the easiest ways to do that is between the haves and the have nots. Right? right. Okay. So again, old money is one of those things that I think we all understand, but I got really curious about this like idea of old money. And mm-hmm. so now you all get to reap the benefits of my curiosity. Old money is a predominantly surprise, surprise, white Anglo-Saxon Protestant thing. Mm-hmm. Old money folks tend to be primarily what's called, I believe, mainline Protestant. So they're like Episcopalians, Presbyterians, Methodists, that kind of a thing. It is all about accumulating enough wealth with a capital W Mm -hmm. to bridge interruptions in income across generations, therefore preventing downward social mobility and making sure that like the offspring of your offspring's offspring will remain financially stable. Right. Chris Rock has this whole great bit where he's talking about wealth versus rich. Mm -hmm. Um, He says that there is no black or brown wealth in the United States. Um, Mm -hmm. He says, we've got some rich people, but we don't have any wealthy people. And he gives this example. Shaq, Shaquille O'Neal is rich. The Mm -hmm. white man who signs his checks is wealthy. Right. Yes. Yeah. Because, and you know, in a few generations or a few hundred years, maybe that'll change. Right. He has another thing where he's like, Rick James was rich. Yeah. But like, he's like rich. Like you can blow on like a couple of good weekends and like a bender, Right. (laughs) you know, and the next thing he was like, and the next thing you know, you're selling corduroys for old Navy, like (laughs) that. Yeah. Like that is the kind of wealth that we are talking about here. And, and he's right. That kind of generational wealth. I think there may be black and brown people in the United States who are starting to approach that level, but mm-hmm. it's nothing like the white generational wealth that exists in this country. And it's not it's not as like entrenched because right. it is new. Because it's yeah. new. Yeah. Right. There's also active old money. And this is people who, despite their generational wealth, are people who choose to pursue their own careers or set up their own businesses. FYI, Paris Hilton is active old money. Hmm. Mm-hmm. The, the Hiltons are old money. That's interesting. Now they 
they are. Uh, well, yeah, I guess by today's standards, yeah. Yeah, now they are. Yeah. Probably not in the 1800s, but. Yeah. Right. Okay. <laughs> yeah, Connie was still, I mean, Connie hadn't even been born yet. Right. Um, you know, I don't, I don't even, I don't know where his parents came from. Well, they're, they're New Mexican. Yeah. 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 And then, so there's active old money and then there's passive old money and that's idle rich Mm-hmm. They don't produce wealth, trust fund babies, that kind of a thing. Mm-hmm. In the U.S., it seems like it seems like Paris Hilton maybe was passive, kind of idle rich, but then I think she's doing more now, so that would make her active, right? Well, here's the thing, because I when I saw that, I was like, "What?" But the thing is, is she's been working for a bit. I guess that's true. Yeah, you know? because even I mean, like, like she played, she played the role of idle rich, but that was her job. Yeah, like, yeah, she uh, was that's, filming. That's a she good was, point. She was doing a show and everything. The Kardashians are new money, right? Um, I believe, but they are active. Yeah, wealth as well. I mean, like all say, of them are doing. Say what you say want. what you want. They work fucking hard. They're doing. They're they're, they're doing. coming up with ideas and they're doing their thing. You know, for the better or the detriment of society. Um, <laughs> okay, so in the U.S., the upper class was divided into the upper upper and the lower upper classes. Mm-hmm. Lower upper just meant you had money, but you made it from investing in business, not inheritance. Right. That I, like that's it. Yeah. God bless. So again, old money in the U.S. was high society. These are families who had not only been in the U.S. since before the American Revolution, their wealth and more importantly, their influence predated the American Revolution. Mm, Um, They came from in the South, the elite planter class. So that's sure. Southern plantation owners. This is also people who were merchants, slave traders, ship owners, right. fur traders. A lot of the old money in New York or old Dutch, like fur traders and stuff like that. Uh, I was going to say, because some of this goes back to Europe. Yeah, 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 yeah. So again, going back to our, going back to the episode where I talked about Washington Irving and the Knickerbockers, mm-hmm. that whole idea of the Knickerbocker, these like old Dutch New York families, right. that's the old money in New York. Right. They eventually, I mean, they, they turn into the old money in New York. Like I said, merchants, slave traders, ship owners, fur traders, their land, if they owned land, which a lot of them did, but their land had been granted to them by the crown during mm-hmm. the colonial period. Right. So again, we're talking about, I mean, people who have quote unquote been here since, or I'm sorry, have been here since the quote unquote beginning of America. Yeah. The planter families in the South produced a whole bunch of founding fathers and a bunch of early U.S. presidents. Mm-hmm. Yep. George Washington was old money. Yeah. Um, at the time that he was alive, his estimated worth was in 2016 dollars, mm-hmm. $525 million. Mm-hmm. He made a lot of money. Right. He's classified as the second wealthiest president in US history. Is dipshit number one. Yes. And but I mean, but that's all that's like false. Oh. So we're just gonna say Washington <laughs> right. is the has been the wealthiest as, president. As we were saying about inventing Anna, like I'm I'm not inclined to give uh, any sort of con artist the uh Precisely. benefit of the doubt. <laughs> Precisely. So you've got all this, you know, these people are they're they're already doing their thing, they're building their wealth, they're building their influence, and then the civil war hits. Mm-hmm. And old money really takes it in the teeth during the civil war. <laughs> Boo hoo. Yeah. 
Yeah, I would think particularly like the southern old money. Particularly in the south with like the burning of the plantations and the freeing of the enslaved people. However, afterwards during Reconstruction, Jim Crow laws and I'm sorry, after Reconstruction, Jim Crow laws and the disenfranchisement of freed black people Mm -hmm. meant that the old money crew retained their influence, if not their wealth. Mm -hmm. Right. So they may have like taken a hit in the bank accounts, but they were still running stuff. Right. Some old money families of note. Okay. Uh, the Randolph family. They came from William Randolph. He was a colonist. Um, his descendants include Thomas Jefferson, U.S. Chief Justice John Marshall, Confederate General Robert E. Lee, Peyton wow. Randolph, who was the first president of the Continental, <laughs> Continental Congress. <laughs> Peyton Randolph was the first president of the Continental Congress and Edmund Randolph, who was the United States first attorney general. Wow. Okay. The DuPonts, they got rich selling gunpowder during the Civil War. Yep. I think I knew that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. The Forbes, they were a Boston family. They made their money in shipping opium and railroads Mm -hmm. Uh, mm -hmm. Forbes are still big money in the U S and John Kerry is a Forbes, former presidential nominee, John Mm -hmm. Kerry. Yeah. I just remember that, that goofball Steve Forbes running for president in the nineties. And he was, was, uh, the only thing he had to talk about was the flat tax. Like that was his whole thing. Uh, Then we have the Virginia Harrisons. They were a political family. They produced founding father, Benjamin Harrison, the fifth, three U S presidents, William Henry Harrison, Benjamin Harrison, and Abraham Lincoln. Mm -hmm. Uh, Benjamin Harrison, the fifth signed the declaration of independence. They also produced a lot of Virginia governors, two Chicago mayors, a buttload of U S representatives and senators and Elvis Presley. Hmm, Interesting. Well, and Mm -hmm. if family lore is correct, Scotty mild. And Scotty Milder. (laughs) Supposedly on my mom's side, uh, I have some, because my mom's maiden name is Harrison and I supposedly have ties to those old school Harrisons, but I don't know if that's just like people in the family trying to, you know. Put on air. So who knows? I've never looked at that. Knows. And then probably the one that is the most recognized when you think of like old money, the Astors. Mm-hmm. They made their money through fur trading, real estate, the hotel industry, the Waldorf Astoria, of course, mm-hmm. and some other shit like Astor Place, which was the home of the Astor Opera House, home of the Astor Place Riot, which I talked about in the first episode. Yeah, call back to the very beginning. Yep. Uh, The Astor family had ancestral roots in the Italian Alps, and that's like Italy, (laughs) fucking Liechtenstein, (laughs) all that stuff. And they first appeared in the U.S. with John Jacob Astor, who Mm -hmm. was one of the wealthiest people in history. Yeah. Yes. Uh, when he died in 1848, it was said he was worth $20 million in 1848. Yeah. I mean, that's like Bill Gates money today. Yes. So the Astor family brings us to Caroline Astor and the 400. Mm-hmm. Caroline Shermerhorn Astor <laughs> was married to William Backhouse Astor Jr., who was John Jacob's grandson. Okay. We were not going to get ton, a ton into names, guys. So, like, relax. <laughs> Some of them. There's yeah. going to be a quiz at the end. Um, <laughs> but Caroline was known simply as the Mrs. Astor. Okay. Yeah. As a Shermerhorn, she was part of New York's Dutch aristocracy. I was going to say Shermerhorn sounds mm-hmm. real Dutch to me. Yeah. Shermerhorn 
Stuvacent, Stuvacent. Oh, Stuyvesant. Yeah. Yes. That's another, that was another like old Dutch. Yeah. I mean, that's a whole family. like, you know, neighborhood in Brooklyn. So, yes. Yeah. So as a Schirmerhorn, she's part of New York city's Dutch aristocracy. And she had a quote superior pedigree as a member of one of those old Knickerbocker. She was one of, she's a member of one of the old Knickerbocker families. Right. She also had her own money. Okay. Like Interesting. she was un. she was kind of unstoppable yeah he's also a notorious gatekeeper Mm, that doesn't surprise me not surprising at all after the civil war when immigrants freed black folks whatever the hell people were starting to come to new york city it was growing really fast it was caroline who was like i hate this so Mm -hmm. what if i create rules and standards about proper behavior and etiquette so that we can really have a clear-cut set of standards about who is old money and who are like the new people Mm -hmm. and that's the thing too is that it wasn't just that like black people and immigrants were coming people were starting to create wealth for themselves. And she was like, "Mm -mm 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 -mm. I hate everything about this. Right. So she started to do all this stuff to really determine who was socially acceptable to be included in New York's high society with the help of, and here's one of those, like, I didn't know that that was a job, but with the help of social arbiter Ward McAllister, I mean, if that's a job, that's a fuck that job. I mean, I could, I feel very qualified to do that job right now. (laughs) Yeah. So with the help of the social arbiter, Ward McAllister, Caroline created the 400 and it was a list of the most fashionable socialites of the day. Obviously she is a champion of old money and tradition. The Mm -hmm. quote, the headline that I gave of like the, don't you know, and you understand. And do you see that is apparently (laughs) how Ward McAllister talked like every quote from him is just every three words it's a do you understand do you see uh, like i'm he sounds fucking insufferable yes so <laughs> but they created this list of the 400 it's a myth that the 400 was the 400 because that's the number of people who could fit in caroline's ballroom mm-hmm. um her original home it was a brownstone was located at 355th avenue and east 34th street do you want to take a guess what sits there now uh say say the address again 355th avenue and east 34th street i mean would that be like Saks fifth avenue it's the Empire State Building. Oh, interesting. Okay. Yeah. I mean, she didn't live in the Empire State Building, but that's where the Empire State Building yeah, sits they, now. They plopped it down there. Okay. Yeah. Uh, the official list was published in the New York Times in 1892. Mm. It is just briefly, it is <laughs> insanity to me that the New York Times would publish a list of the 400 fanciest rich people in the city. <laughs> Like it, it's but insane I mean, we, to me that that was news. But I mean, we still do that because you get these lists of like the richest billionaires or like Entertainment Weekly would be like the most powerful people in Hollywood, you know, that kind of stuff, you know? Yeah, so it's it like, just feels so modern and it's frivolity. Yeah. That it, I'm just like, this is insanity to me. Like, yeah. so it gets published in 1892. Ward had said in 1888 that if you went outside of that 400, so the 400 is this list, right? It's this list right. that's running around that Caroline and Ward were like, okay, well, they're on it. 
in the head, like those people are and blah, 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 blah. And they're talking about it, talking about it. Word gets out about it. And there's all this speculation about who is on the list and who is not on the list. The reason, this is part of the reason why I got published in the New York Times is because everybody, journalists included, were speculating about who is on this list. So finally, Caroline and War got together and they were like, no, this is the definitive list. Okay. This is the actual thing. But Ward had said in 1888 that if you went outside of that 400, and not like the number, but these 400 chosen people, you strike people who are either not at ease in a ballroom or else make other people not at ease. Okay. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Man, these, so, these people suck. Yeah. The list (laughs) consisted of bankers, lawyers, brokers, real estate dudes, railroaders. There was an editor, a publisher, one artist, and two architects. It was a mix of knobs, old money, and Mm -hmm. swells, new money folks that Mrs. Astor begrudgingly felt were able to partake in polite society like the Vanderbilts. Okay. Mm-hmm. That's so, crazy to me. The Vanderbilts is new money. It's anyway. insane to me. That's the interesting thing is that a lot of the people that I'm going to be talking about here in a sec are people that if you were like, if you hear the phrase old money, who do you think of? And it would mm-hmm. be these people. It's not going to be the fish. Right. It's not going to be the like Cabots because they're so old that like, I think people have just forgotten about them. Now, right. <laughs> you know? Okay. So Caroline was the authority, obviously on New York aristocracy. She would throw these ridiculously lavish parties for herself and other socialites. And you were only allowed to attend these parties if you'd gotten an official calling card from Caroline herself. Okay. Super. For gatekeepy. Right. Um, let's talk a little bit about what was going on in New York City at this time. Okay. So New York is the epicenter of the Gilded Age, and it perfectly encapsulated the wealth and the inequality that was present at this time. Mm-hmm. So in the 1880s and 90s, New York is seeing the expansion of rail lines. Neighborhoods are starting to pop up and grow all over the place. Infrastructure right. is being improved. Electricity was being installed underground along with telegraph lines. New parks were popping up. And there are like stuff like the Statue of Liberty, Grant's Tomb, and the Washington Square Arch are being built. Right. But the city also has a ton of abject poverty. Sure. Okay. And you have stuff like the building of Central Park, which is supposed to be this like lovely pastoral lawn for the fucking sheep and everything up on the, you know, on the upper end of of the island. But the building of Central Park displaced 1600 lower class people and Mm. an entire African-American community known as Seneca Village. Mm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Seneca Village is an episode in and of itself. I've heard. Um, I don't know that much about it, but I've heard of it. Yeah. 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 If that like piques your curiosity, go look it up because it's pretty intense. Labor unions were just like labor unions really weren't a thing before this period. (sighs) Corporate wealth was starting to be examined. And like, this is the hilarious thing, right? Is that you've got like a seven-year-old who's like... I don't know, like selling papers or, or sewing mm-hmm. shirt waists or whatever the hell. And then there's these 
people a couple of blocks up and they're throwing these like ridiculously lavish parties yeah and like just throwing money right out, out the window and debating you know whether it's proper to serve like hot soup at luncheon like it's <laughs> it's fucking insanity to me yeah so people like the asters and really i mean everybody who was wealthy at the time they were practicing this thing called conspicuous consumption and it's right. a phrase that was popularized by sociologist thorstein veblen and it means purchasing that fulfills no material need, but rather showcases wealth. So spending for spending's sake, just right. because, because you could. I mean, it's like Trump's golden toilets and stuff. Yes. Yeah. I can't believe that people think that a golden toilet is fucking cool. Guys get better yeah. standards. <laughs> golden toilet is like it's a golden toilet. Do you know how soft gold is? Uh, yeah. No, it's, it's, it's definitely not practical. <laughs> no. Uh, God. Okay. So now let's get into old money versus new money. Mm-hmm. So there's old money. And there's new money or the nouveau riche. But the fact of the matter is, is that all of these people are fucking wealthy. Yeah. Like wealthy and money is money. Right. Right. So why all the fucking snobbery and the gatekeeping? The reason for this is because old money didn't want anyone else moving in on their territory. And they can see their powers getting like. Mm -hmm. And this goes back to what I was saying during the uh, William Desmond Taylor story and sort of like, you know, Hollywood popping up. And then again, all of a sudden you have these people from humble beginnings. There was a stratum of people in this country who had carved out the aristocracy for themselves. Right. Right. And they were going to be damned if a bunch of sons of peddlers, Rockefeller, ferry operators, Vanderbilt, and God forbid, Scottish weavers, Carnegie, were going mm-hmm. to infiltrate the class structure they had inherited. Well, yeah, because they may not be called nobility, but I'm sure they think of themselves as nobility. Yeah. And there yeah. is this thing. It's interesting to me to see, and I don't know about circles of vast wealth now. You and I were texting about this a little bit, but it's hard for me to imagine a circle in which someone like Jeff Bezos goes into and they're like, nah, you're like, you create like nice for you. You created a little, yeah, yeah, that you created a nice little like online flea market, but (laughs) you know, we've been doing this for generations. Right. It feels like, yeah, I wonder if that still exists because I can't imagine him being like turned away from somewhere because he's new money. I think it exists. I don't think it's quite the same. Like uh, we were talking about this when we were texting is it's like, there is a thing with the Trump family Mm. where like the the what you would now call old money new york they're probably the new money of the time look down their nose at the trumps because they were like a bunch of like bruiser real estate con men from queens or whatever right, right. and that's been like a chip on trump's shoulder like his entire life right so it's like that is there but then also you're talking about the trump so it's like there's a part of me that's like well i mean maybe he was kind of earned you know well and this is the thing is that are they snubbing him because he's quote unquote new money or are they snubbing him because he's a fucking disgusting i'm gonna get assassinated my mom's gonna be like (laughs) stop talking about this shit on the podcast but because he's because he's gross you know what i mean like well that's the the thing that's that's a definite like chicken or the egg problem right the thing is is that he's clearly not cultured he has no interest like everything about him is vulgar mm-hmm. there is no there's yeah. there's none of yeah i, I just i have I, to stop i have to stop talking about yeah. him. he's raising my blood pressure um, I, I do feel like this like old money aristocracy snobbiness i'm sure it exists but it seems like just from an outsider's perspective it does seem like easier to buy your way in now 
Yeah. yeah, that's yeah, that's what I'm wondering about. And so, yeah, like I said, again, Rockefeller, his dad was a peddler. Vanderbilt, his dad operated a ferry. Carnegie, his dad was a Scottish weaver. Like humble yeah. beginnings. There yeah. was another Rockefeller's one- from Cleveland, where my dad's from. I believe. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Uh, another one whose name wasn't quite as familiar to me, but like his father was a minister. I mean, these are, mm-hmm. these are, and again, the very interesting thing to me is that I'm like, these guys are the American dream, mm-hmm. right? Like these guys come from humble aspects, a fucking Scottish weaver mm-hmm. produced Carnegie. It's got a whole university named after him now. Right, right. So like I said, old money was like, you will infiltrate this class over my dead body, you know? Right. They, they, because Scotty, because they worked hard being born into that kind of wealth. <laughs> so that's it. That's the sole reason mm-hmm. that there were no other reasons other than just like you, you made your money. I inherited my money and therefore yeah. I am better than you. Well, they, I mean, they think that that means some sort of like genetic superiority, right? Bizarre well, to me. This is the interesting thing is that old money said that the reason for this, I mean, I'm going to call it snobbery. They called it, you know, this like separation distinction mm-hmm. between old money and new money was because new money was vulgar. It was on, it was ostentatious. It was lacking right. the worldly experience, the proper breeding and the system of values that old money had. Okay. okay. Here's a little, here's a little quote. Mrs. Jerome Napoleon Bonaparte, her husband was Napoleon's nephew. I believe, but she, that's the thing is that her husband, she married into what had once been considered the nouveau riche. She had this to say about new money quote, the nouveau riche is making places like Palm beach, no more exclusive than Coney Island, Newport, the last stronghold of the elite has the moneyed intruder at the gates. Undesirables are penetrating everywhere. The moneyed intruder. Mm -hmm. Wow. Mm -hmm. And like, undesirables. Yeah. yeah. Fuck you too, bitch. Just, you know what I'm yeah, saying? Fuck, like, fuck these fucking people. Right. <laughs> and I mean, I think there's probably also some stuff in there too, right? Like we have, if you're talking about peddlers, you're talking Scottish weaver, obviously mm. you're talking about ferrymen. Most likely these are people who are not quote unquote white Anglo-Saxon Protestants. Yeah. You probably know, a lot so, of Catholics and yeah. Yeah. So an interesting sidebar, uh, because new money was socially isolated from the ruling class, mm-hmm. it meant, I think this is fascinating. It meant that they didn't wholly assimilate. So they retained identification with the traditional group of origin. Yeah. I think that that's fucking fascinating. Yeah. So, you know, they were like holding on to Scottish traditions. They were holding on to the, like. I think Carnegie, if I'm not mistaken, like he did a bunch of philanthropic stuff in Scotland. Yes. And that leads me into new money prioritized issues of radical justice, civil liberties, and religious tolerance over pure economical self-interest. Interesting. And even though these new money dudes were like robber barons. I was going to say, let's not like pat them on the back too hard. (laughs) Right, right. Because they absolutely did some shady shit to make their wealth. They were also huge philanthropists Mm -hmm. in ways that old money decidedly wasn't. Yeah. I mean, that's the thing is that like, again, Rockefeller, Carnegie, Mm -hmm. Vanderbilt, like those people threw a lot of money mm-hmm. into a lot of different things. And they were like, but we're going to do stuff for our community and all that stuff. Again, right. still robber barons. Yeah. 
still yeah. like I mean they're, they're, they're still they're still dicks they're just not they're not, not the same kind of dick like. precisely <laughs> um <laughs> so old money was looking for like each and every way to hold on to their status in New York City and one of the last places they had all to themselves was the Academy of Music mm. um the Academy of Music was incorporated in 1852 for the purpose of quote advancing musical taste and to secure musical entertainments accessible to the public at a moderate charge mm-hmm. okay accessibility moderate advancing musical taste public right Mm -hmm. the people who ran the academy looked to avoid the odor of exclusiveness okay and they did this i'm gonna tell you exactly how they did this they did this by lavishly decorating the interior of the 4,000 seat theater everything was like i think red and gold uh they there was richly painted murals and tickets cost the equivalent of sixty dollars today okay yeah but like do you know a ton of people who can afford sixty dollar tickets i mean i can't right but -hmm. it's but it's not like it's not like five hundred dollars to go see the rolling stones (laughs) it's not good it's not good especially at that time especially if you're like accessibility moderately priced to the public blah 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 yeah no i mean it's it's phony yeah, you could buy a box for about the modern day equivalent of $950. Okay. So like, yeah, super accessible. The <laughs> original Academy burned in 1866 and they rebuilt the new one like just as lavishly. The mm-hmm. new building could seat 2,500, okay? Okay. The Academy was the place to see and be seen at the time. Edith Wharton in her book, The Age of Innocence, she mm. had people going to the Academy of Music. Okay. all the fucking time okay. um and owning one of the 18 opera boxes again so the thing sits 2500 people and there are 18 opera boxes and if mm-hmm. you owned one of those 18 opera boxes at the academy that basically declared your place in society the boxes were a visible like ownership of a box was a visible sign of wealth and social position mm-hmm. so of course the box owners held on to those things like for fucking dear life so that none of the undesirable new money folks could get their hands on one. Right. But here's the thing. When the people you're trying to gatekeep have (laughs) just as much money as you do. Yeah. They're just going to build another fucking gate. Yeah. Like they're just going to be like, okay, we don't need your music Academy dicks. Yeah. Yeah. On April 28th, 1880, a group of 22 men, that included J.P. Morgan, William K. and Cornelius Vanderbilt, Robert and Ogden Golette, and more met at New York City's famed Delmonico's restaurant. Mm-hmm. They elected officers and established subscriptions for ownership in a new company, the Metropolitan Opera. Nice. The new theater would be built at 39th and Broadway, would include three tiers of private boxes, and plenty of rooms for the families of New York's powerful industrialists. Okay. The Metropolitan's first subscribers were the Morgans, the Vanderbilts, and the Roosevelts. Yes, those Roosevelts. Yeah. I I was going to ask. I've never Mm -hmm. looked this up. Were the Roosevelts at the time, were they new money or old money? I have seen both. But I think what happens, I think what's going on is that they are now old money and at the time were new money. Okay. So I think they're like the the Rockefellers, the Vanderbilts. They were part of the new money. Mm-hmm. Okay, mm-hmm. that that's what I never. I've always wondered because Roosevelt also sounded super Dutch to me, so I wondered if they're yes. part of that old Dutch, yes, whatever. But anyway. yes, all of them, the Morgans, the Vanderbilts, and the Roosevelts had been excluded from the Academy. Okay, 
in a prime example of too little, too late, the Academy was like, okay, fine, 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 fine. We'll add like another 120 seats and we'll add like another 26 opera boxes. They had the space to add 26 more boxes. Mm -hmm. And they were like, no, like before that, they were just like, "Mm -mm, no, there's no room for you here. There's Mm -hmm. no room at the end. Yeah. So the new money was like, (laughs) cool boxes. Bye. Bye. Yeah. Now this would have been a good time for old money to be like, okay, we get it. You can sit with us, but they didn't, they doubled down. In fact, Colonel Mapleson, who, uh, it just (laughs) said, Colonel Mapleson, it just said Colonel Mapleson. Mapleson of the Academy of Music. So I have no okay. idea what he did. There. That just sounds very gilded age to me. Right. Um, he said in the New York World newspaper, quote, people may go to the new opera house to see what it's like, but gradually the novelty of the place will die away and then they will go where they can hear good music. Yeah. Metropolitan <laughs> Opera House opened on October 22nd, 1883. It was an immediate artistic and social success. Mm-hmm. The Old Met was located at 1411 Broadway and it got gutted by a fire in 1892. Mm. It was rebuilt on the same location and reopened in 1893 and was there until 1966 when the theater wow. had its final performance on April 16th and the building was demolished in 1960. 67. Metropolitan Opera still exists today yeah. at its new home located at Lincoln Center on the Upper West Side of New York City. The right. space holds 3,732 seats with an additional 242 standing room places. Oh, okay. just something that like the Academy of Music had not even thought about. I, I'm just trying to imagine standing through an opera, but anyway, I have not <laughs> stood through an opera. I have stood through Broadway shows, mm-hmm. and it's. So, I mean, and I like, I you know, I'm I'm yeah. I'm a I'm a theater nerd, and it was still, I was like, oh, I right. <laughs> it is the largest classical music organization in North America. They hmm. present an average. Well, until 2019, they produce a, they produce an average of 27 productions a season. No. Okay. Uh, It houses a large symphony, a chorus, a children's choir, supporting and leading singers, as well as the uh, jobbers that they job in, like dancers, actors, musicians, et cetera. Uh, American and international stars have performed on the Met stage. In 1931, they released the first full opera broadcast from the Met on the radio. Oh, cool. They did regular Saturday afternoon live broadcasts through the 20th century. And that continues today. Like every Saturday you can tune in and hear the opera that's taking place Saturday afternoon. In 1977, they began releasing televised performances of operas on public television. Mm, Also, I've seen those. Yeah, mm -hmm, They also released performances on video and DVD in 1995. Uh They started caption in 1995. They started captioning their shows in 2006. They created the Met live in HD series that transmits performances to local movie theaters live and schools. Yeah. yeah, Okay. So kids in schools can see opera. They -hmm. produce modern work as well as the classics. Their work reaches 800,000 people in the city of New York, 2000 venues in 73 countries across six continents throughout the world. They have a serious XM radio channel an online streaming service, and they offer $25 rush tickets during the holidays. Nice accessible yeah i was gonna say so they so they're not doing the phony accessible they're they're like real accessible Mm -hmm. the academy of music folded just three years after the mets opening (laughs) night in 1983 or in 1883 i mean i figured you were gonna say it folded but i thought it'd last more than three oh no 
<laughs> Three years. Yeah. The okay. building was demolished in 1926 to make way for the consolidated Edison building, which I believe still stands. And that is a brief history of New York City's old money, new money, and the building of the Metropolitan Opera. Well, and what's beautiful about the end of that story is I'm pretty sure Edison would also qualify as new money. Yeah. So like, <laughs> just like knock that shit down and we're going to throw up our own shit on top of it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And it is, I mean, it is. You know, again, I know these I know these people are like robber barons. I know that there was a lot of stuff about the way that they made their right. money. But it's it very much is to me, I'm like, that is the American dream. It was supposed to be that you yeah. could come to this country from nothing and build everything. And not just build right. everything, but build everything for your grandchildren's grandchildren's grandchildren. Right. right. You know, yeah. And those families did. Yeah. Like, well, I mean, they're still, I mean, uh yeah. what's one of the Rockefellers? Is Jay Rockefeller is like, is he a senator or a governor of West Virginia? I think like to this day, like they're still around. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, Anderson Cooper's of Vanderbilt. Right, right, right. Mm-hmm. Um, the Hiltons, like you said, mm-hmm. I mean, they were, they were more like Western new money, I guess. Cause Conrad Hilton is from New Mexico. Right. Um, but like right. the, the bummer about these new money guys is yeah. It, it's like such an American dream story, but the other, they're, part of the American dream part of it is like stepping on a lot of people to get ahead. Yeah. Yeah. yeah and like yeah, a yeah. lot of union busting. Oh, and yeah. like, shitty shitty fucking things but yeah there's something about that crusty idle old money that is just so contemptible to me (laughs) well and the thing that's interesting and one of the things that it's sort of like the reason i was like "Hmm," is because they mention this in the gilded age the Mm -hmm. ladies are having a lunch and they start talking about there's a big benefit that's going to be happening at the academy of music for clara barton because she's trying to drum up support for the american red cross and somebody mentioned that a bunch of the new money people are trying to start their own opera house and talks about how they met at, you know, Delmonico's and blah, blah, mm-hmm. blah. And I think it's ye old Caroline Astor. Who's like, who, you know, like mm-hmm. who was there? And one of the other women is like, you know, it was the Vanderbilts and yeah. JP Morgan and all you know, that the trash. Rockefellers. Yeah. And yeah. she called, you know, she says in a bunch of other miscontent or malcontents, that's what she calls them. <laughs> and I was like, wait, what? And so yeah. I went and looked and I was like, oh shit, those people started the Metropolitan Opera. Yeah. And, and it's interesting to see too, that like what you also find with these old money families is that their fortunes were dwindling <laughs> rapidly because oh, yeah. Well, I mean, like you said, a lot of them, they're not even really around. They're not like a thing anymore. Right. And they, I think there was maybe some more practicing of bad business deals and more passive wealth Mm -hmm. that was going on there. And so, you know, they're getting to the point where they're like, it's, I'm like, the money is running out and we Mm -hmm. are now having to budget and be careful and do this stuff because... Right. Well, it's like I I mentioned when you were talking to me about this stuff, it's like the movie Titanic. If you remember Mm -hmm. Rose's family, they're supposed to be like old money that have lost all their money. And then Cal, uh, Billy Zane is like new money swooping in to rescue them. Is he new money? Because they're so shitty. They're so shitty about Molly Brown being new money. I thought he was supposed to be. I could be wrong. Maybe they're maybe they're just like less shitty old money or something like less shitty with their finances. old money. But but like Molly Brown is almost like total new money because it was all mining money yeah yeah that whole like robber baron era is super fascinating to me and like and like Mm -hmm. i was saying one thing that is fascinating is you think of these like discrete periods like you think of victorian like the victorian era 
Mm-hmm. you know and that seems so like almost like the middle ages or something but like that's taking place at like the same time as like the old west yep the gilded age in this country and yep. like you know these things are like happening concurrently it's such a weird mishmash yep of things coming together yeah know? yeah like people are starting to plant grapes in napa valley like right, all of right. this stuff is like starting to happen yeah. um yeah it's also <laughs> It was also fucking cutthroat. There is a plot I'm not going to get into, but is based on, I think he was a Vanderbilt, somebody named the Commodore. Okay. And (laughs) the Commodore, like, what the fuck? Okay. (laughs) The Commodore. And this is when you start getting into people doing stuff with stocks Mm. and, and doing all that stuff. And there was something that happened with the Commodore and he was not like he, I'm pretty sure he was a Vanderbilt. He was new money and he was not, he needed the support of old money and old Mm -hmm. money was like, no, we're not going to because you're new money. And he was like, fine. And so he went and he did this thing that basically ended up ruining some Mm. old money folks to the point where some of these dudes fucking kill themselves. Jesus. Yeah. Like they lost everything. Yeah. And it's, it's again, like, this is the interesting thing to me is that I'm like, you have in front of you, the guy who is the son of like a fishmonger. And he is now able to buy stocks in such a way that he can take everything from you and you don't go, okay, well, I'm just going to have to do that for myself. You go, well, mm-hmm. the money's gone. Goodbye world. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's, it's nuts. I mean, one of like my favorite, one of the families, and I guess they would be considered new money families that I'm the most fascinated with are the Hearsts. Because mm. you had like, you know, George Hearst, who was like, uh, I think all his money came from mining and stuff. Mm-hmm. Father of William Randolph Hearst, who, of course, is the model for Charles Foster Kane and Citizen Kane. And mm-hmm. then get all the way down to like Patty Hearst and the SLA. And like, mm-hmm. it, like, that's just talk about a family that's like fucking gone through some shit. Like, yeah, if anyone's ever interested, I think it's highly fictionalized. Uh-huh. But if anyone's ever watched the show Deadwood, uh, oh, uh-huh. George Hearst pops in and I think he pops in in the third season played by the great Gerald McCraney. And he's just like one of the best TV villains in history. I read up on it and I'm like, I don't know that George Hurst was quite the dick that Deadwood makes him out to be, but mm-hmm. <laughs> But yeah. it's, it's a it's a it's a great character at the very least. Yeah, an interesting thing. So you know, I was talking about Caroline, mm-hmm. and again, you know, talking about like women not being like legally not being able to work, and so a lot of these wives would go and volunteer and right. they would do things, and you know, they were patrons and blah 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 blah. But Alva Vanderbilt. And mm-hmm. let me hold on because I want to check and see who she was married to. I mean, obviously it was a Vanderbilt. She was a she was kind of a badass bitch, dude. <laughs> um, so she was married to William K. Vanderbilt, who was also okay. there at Delmonico's. Here's the thing about her is that she kind of really fucking turned into a badass. Like she was doing the whole like new money thing. And then she got into the suffrage movement. But Mm. not only did she get into the suffrage movement, she was also like, hey, it doesn't need to just be votes for white women it also needs to be votes for black women as well right and people were like like record scratch you know what <laughs> right, i mean like, right. they were like yeah and she was like no fuck this like we have to actually do this we've got to be really serious and intentional about this yeah um and she was yeah she was she was kind of a fucking badass mm-hmm. um so there's some like anything there is some 
very cool stuff and some very shitty shady stuff that comes out of it. But like I said, if you want to look into that stuff, another thing, if you want to look into is the new money homes that were built. Mm, Right. You know, these like vacation homes and stuff that they built again, Jekyll Island is, Mm -hmm. is another place where they were like, there's just nowhere for us to be anymore. (laughs) Um, We have to go somewhere else. And just, you know, we'll give you um, an idea of the wealth. Like I was saying before, before, you know, that Caroline lived in a brownstone. That's what like old money was doing. They were living mm-hmm. in fucking carry on sex in the city, like her brownstone, but it was probably right. like three of those buildings. And they were living in that. And the new money was coming in and they were building these like mansions, ridiculous homes that were like, yeah. you know, very inspired by European architecture. And everybody was like, this is gaudy and tacky. There's, there's this area in Cleveland. And I think it is like new money. Cleveland. It's like Rockefeller money. Cleveland. Mm-hmm. It's this area called Bratnall um, that I've driven through that. It, it is crazy. Cause you drive through it and it is just these, cause you're in Cleveland, which is like, you don't think of Cleveland as like a rich city, mm-hmm. but then you turn down this like one road and all of a sudden it's just these fucking palaces along. Um, yeah yeah and um most i think most of the most of their homes in new york city have been demolished but there are a couple that still exist that now house like museums Mm -hmm. and stuff you can literally do a google search for it and look at them um it's very very cool so yeah thanks for joining me on this little old money history lesson that was interesting i mean you got me where i really do want to like sit down and watch the gilded age I'm going to tell you again, you got to get through the first, like the first episode is really a little like, okay, okay. Well, I mean, you know, The Wire is my favorite show and like everyone taps out of that show by episode three, you know? Yeah. So I'm I'm used to that kind of thing. Yeah. But stuff is starting to pick up. It's got a couple in there that is like 100% relationship goals. Um, (laughs) They're just like, oh my God. Fantastic. Oh, 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 oh. This is another actually uh, a very cool reason since I did not do a another black history month story, but this is actually a reason why you should check out the Gilded Age on HBO is because they actually talk about what was going on with black middle-class families in New Mm. York at the time. Interesting. Yeah. That would be really interesting. Yeah. And like what was going on with like black newspapers and, Mm -hmm. and all that kind of stuff, which is, I mean, something that is, I can't think of another pop culture thing that has touched on that particular group Mm -hmm. in that time period. So absolutely go check it out and then let that sort of, you know, lead your, lead your research, fall down yeah. a rabbit hole. Yeah. About, no, that, that, uh, so, that black, sounds the really, black middle class. Uh, yeah, that sounds really interesting. Yeah. Cool. All right. That's all I got. Okay. Well, uh, thank you guys again for listening. Uh, yeah. I think this was a fun episode. I, I really I had a good I time so too. with this one. I hope so. Yeah, <laughs> me too. <laughs> uh, all right well all right guys thanks for listening stay weird stay curious and if i survive my surgery we'll see you next time oh that's right yeah we'll (laughs) we'll talk about that when when we're off there yep (laughs) okay bye bye so listen friends we'll blow your mind with the finest nonsense we could find might be true and that's the weirdest thing